Part seven of descriptive analyses of piano works by Edward Baxter Perry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. List eighteen eleven to eighteen eighty six. Chopin's Polish songs transcribed for piano by Liszt. Six of these songs, transcribed for piano, with all Liszt's wanted skill, render this charming vein of Chopin's work available to the pianist. I cite two as illustrations. These Polish songs by Chopin are, comparatively speaking, unknown, even among musicians, overshadowed and hidden, as they have always been, by the number and magnitude of his pianoforte works. Like wood violets lost in the depths of a forest. Yet though small and unpretentious as the violets, they are among his most genial and poetic creations. Seventeen of them have been published, as genuine bits of vocal melody as ever were penned or sung. There are many more which have never been printed, scarcely even written out in full, hasty pastime sketches, the fair daughters of a momentary inspiration, wedded to stray verses of Polish poetry which caught Chopin's fancy, from the pen of Mitrovich and other national bards. The Maiden's Wish The Maiden's Wish, the first of the two songs presented, is one of the earliest and most popular, so far as known. A dainty, capricious little mazurka song, half playful, half tender. The words embody the fond wish of a merry, winsome maiden, whose life is touched to seriousness by the shadow of first love upon the, her pathway. The wish that she were a sunbeam to leave the high vault of heaven and desert the flowers and streams of earth to shine through her lover's window and gladden him alone. Or that she were a bird to leave the fields and forests and fly on swift pinions to his window at early dawn and wake him with a song of love. The music accurately and closely reproduces the spirit of the words in all their warmth, archness, and grace. Short but continually recurring trill, ever on the selfsame note, in prelude and interlude, suggests the thrill which the maiden feels at heart as she flits, singing about the house and garden, and consciously keeping step to the rhythm of the mazurka, the native dance of her province. The Ring the second song selected resembles in form the ordinary folk song with its single reiterated musical strophe, and also in its simplicity, its fresh, unaffected sincerity of mood. But it shows far more perfect workmanship, and is of a much more refined and poetic quality. It is plaintively sad, tenderly pathetic in every phrase, a pale, delicate blossom of sentiment dropped upon the grave of youth and first love. It describes the early betrothal of a youth full of faith, hope, and happiness to his playmate and child love. On departing into strange lands, the youth gives the maiden a ring, and she gives him in exchange a promise to become his bride on his return. After years of weary wandering, during which his heart had been ever faithful to his early love, he returns to find she has forgotten ring and promise and love. But in spite of her perfidy and the hopelessness of his attachment, his constant thoughts cling ever to the little ring he gave and the little playmate with her childish grace and garb. A very old story and a very simple one, but none the less sad for that. In addition to its intrinsic charm and artistic merit, this little composition possesses a personal interest in its subtle reference to Chopin's own experience. The great tone poet knew a love other and earlier than that described passion for George Sand, which blasted his life and broke his heart. But his beloved Constantia, to whom he was betrothed before leaving Poland at twenty years of age, to seek his fortune in the great world, forgot her plighted vows, and the little ring he gave as their visible token, and married another. And it is the composer's own grieved and disappointed heart that speaks in this tenderly beautiful song, saddened by the first of the many swiftly gathering clouds which obscured the brightness of his sunny youth and in a few short years rendered the name of Chopin synonymous to his friends with grief and suffering. The Poetic and Religious Harmonies by Franz Liszt Liszt's reputation in this country as a pianoforte composer has hitherto rested in the main upon his brilliant and popular operatic fantasies, a few of his etudes, and his unique and world-famous Hungarian rhapsodies, all of which, though effective and by no means to be despised, are, after all, only the bright bubbles tossed off in playful mood from the surface of his genius, like the globules that rise from the sparkling champagne. 
that there is a deeper more serious and far more important vein of strictly original work of his which has yet scarcely been discovered still less exploited few persons even among the musicians themselves seem to be aware of course in the large cities his orchestral works that is to say some of them have been occasionally given and his concertos have become fairly well known but elsewhere he is chiefly known as the leading manufacturer of musical pyrotechnics the inventor of the best pianistic skyrockets and the best articles of tonal thunder and lightning thus far put upon the world's market but the fact is that his future fame as a creative musician is destined to stand upon a much firmer and more lasting basis namely that of the original work referred to and i believe in a much higher niche in the temple of art than it at present occupies among these original works and forming an important and distinct division of them peculiar to itself both in form and subject matter the poetic and religious harmonies claim our attention these were written under rather singular circumstances all through his life from early boyhood liszt was subject to occasional moods of intense religious fervour devotional paroxysms one might also call them sweeping over him like a tidal wave submerging for the time all other thoughts and impulses and then receding to leave him about where they found him a transitory and spasmodic nature has led many to believe that they were not real but assumed simulated hypocritically for effect or for a purpose as for example to escape the importunate claims of his several mistresses but those who knew him best are inclined to make allowance for his impulsive erratic unbalanced temperament his undeveloped oriental nature half barbaric in spite of its immense and manifold powers and to conceive that while they lasted they were very genuine and very profound under this impelling force he was several times on the point of giving up his worldly career and devoting himself to a monastic life and was only restrained by the efforts of his many friends and admirers in eighteen fifty six came the last and most enduring of these impulses and in obedience to it he abandoned his life as a concert artist which phenomenal success has never had a parallel before or since retired into rigorous seclusion in the vatican at rome where he was the guest and pupil of the pope himself and devoted nearly five consecutive years to religious study and contemplation receiving the title of abbe in the catholic church which he retained till his death and writing a considerable number of compositions all of a distinctively religious character all based upon religious themes either incidents narrated in the scriptures or in the lives of the saints or subjective experiences connected with his own spiritual life and development among these his great legend of saint elizabeth is preeminent and this series of nine poetic and religious harmonies each a complete composition having no connection with the others except in its general character bearing a special title indicating its nature and subject some of them are of very great musical worth and importance and are among his best productions notably the number three book two entitled the benediction of god in the solitude it is one of these subjective emotional compositions referred to giving us a glimpse into the heart life of a composer during this epoch of profound and intense religious experience it opens with a subdued but strongly emotional cello-like theme in the left hand expressing the first discontent and vague longings of a soul whose best aspirations and highest needs have found no real satisfaction in worldly things yet which has no certain grasp no safe reliance on any life beyond and above the present a soul adrift on the dark ocean of doubt and scepticism with no guiding star of hope no beacon light of promise not even the compass of faith in things unseen by which to shape its course this mood grows steadily in intensity through the successive stages of unrest agitation distress despair to an overpowering climax then it is followed by a short quiet movement in d major literally imitating the tranquil strain of the organ and the distant sound of cathedral bells thus symbolizing the promises and preferred consolations of the church then appeared a grave pondering of thoughtful examination and introspection and then the first theme repeats of less vehement treatment in a gentle though still agitated mood like a recapitulation of his former state from a newly acquired standpoint a softened memory of the old stormy desperate mood the work closes with a tranquil flowing movement a complete inundation of the spirit by a flood of that peace which passeth under the benediction of god in the solitude 
he has found, as he believes, safety, rest, and reconciliation with divine law and will. This closing strain in its reposeful happiness forms a fitting and most beautiful ending to the serious, ideally suggestive composition. Other numbers of the set are almost equally interesting, but I have not space for more of them. This one will serve as a good example, and I may add that it was regarded by Liszt himself as the best of his piano compositions. A little French poem from Liszt's own pen, which stands as a motto at the head of this music, sums up its significance. I append a nearly literal translation. Whence comes, O oh my God, this sweet peace that surrounds my glad heart, and this faith that within me abounds? To me, who uncertain in anguish of mind, on an ocean of doubt tossed about by each wind, was seeking for truth in the dreams of the sage, and for peace among hearts that were chafing with rage. A sudden there flashed on my soul from above a vision of glorified heavenly love. It seemed that an age and a world passed away, and I rise a new man to enjoy a new day. Liszt's Ballads While speaking of Liszt's original compositions, we must not omit his two ballads, which, though musically a little disappointing, are works of considerable magnitude and marked individuality, and possess no small degree of descriptive interest. They are in the same general form and vein as the Chopin ballads, and were evidently suggested by them, though they cannot be compared with them either for beauty or for strength. First ballad. The first, in B minor, is decidedly the more vigorous of the two, and the more difficult. It is based upon the pathetically tragic story of the prisoner of Chillon, so ably told in Byron's poem, which the player should read with care, so as to familiarize himself thoroughly with its incidents and moods. The poem tells of that nameless captive chained for life to a pillar in a rock-hewn dungeon beneath the castle of Chillon on Lake Lemain, below the surface of the lake, so that he listens day and night to the dull thunder or mournful murmur of the changeful waves above his head, as his own indication of the shifting moods of nature in the living world. Her passing smiles and storms the slowly circling seasons as they come and go. A double dungeon, wall and wave, have made like a living grave. Below the surface of the lake, the dark vault lies wherein we lay. We heard its ripple night and day. Sounding o'er our heads it knocked, and then the very rock hath rocked. And I have felt it shake unshocked, because I could have smiled to see the death that would have set me free. Years drag themselves out to eternities. One by one his few companions die of cold and hunger, leaving him alone in that living tomb with his endless, changeless, unutterable misery. I had no thought, no feeling, none. Among the stones I stood a stone. It was not night, it was not day, for all was blank and bleak and grey. A sea of stagnant idleness, blind, boundless, mute, and motionless. His only gleam of comfort were the occasional visits of an azure-winged bird that came now and then and perched on the window-ledge outside his dungeon bars, a fair and gentle companion symbolizing for him all the beauty and tenderness and sweetness in the life he has lost, and on which he comes to concentrate the love and interest of his famished heart. A lovely bird with azure wings, and song that said a thousand things, and seemed to say them all to me, I never saw the like before, I ne'er shall see its likeness more. It seemed like me to want a mate, but was not half so desolate, and it was come to love me when none lived to love me so again. The opening movement of the ballad, representing the thunder of the waves reverberating through the gloom of that cavern-like cell, and the later lyric, which might be called the bird theme, suggesting his tender communing with his little friend, are the best movements in the work. The details of the story are not carried on, but its outlines, and especially its moods, are clearly given. Second ballad. The second ballad in D-flat major is more melodious and attractive, but less strong. It is dedicated to Liszt's lifelong friend and powerful patron, the Duke of Weimar, and out of compliment to him, treats of an episode in the Duke's family history back in the days of the Second Crusade. A young and gallant chief of the house of Weimar stands in the rosy light of early dawn on the highest turret of his castle, with his newly wedded bride taking a long farewell of her, and of their fair domain, for at sunrise he leads his knights and men-at-arms to the crusade, and the return is years distant and uncertain. Their mood is full of sadness, and yet of a strong religious exultation and trust. 
his mission is a grand and glorious one heaven will surely guide and protect its faithful knights and his lady bids him godspeed though with tearful eyes from the castle court below sounds of gathering troops and martial preparation rise to their ears at first faintly then with growing din and clamour till a burst of trumpets greets the rising sun the gates are flung open and hastily descending he takes his place at the head of his forces and they march away to the strains of inspiriting military music the lady still stands alone on her turret waving her greetings stand there as he sees her last flooded with the glory of the morning an embodiment of love and hope and promise a vision to haunt his waking dreams in faraway palestine to cheer his lonely campfire vigils and lead him to victory on the field of action as she still stands dreamily watching the last gleam of the spear points the last flutter the receding banners the sanguine fancy of youth leaps the intervening years as she thinks she hears the strains of the martial music at the head of the returning army coming in triumph back from a successful campaign the successive moments in the story above sketched are given with realistic distinctness in the music and can be followed without difficulty transcriptions for the piano by franz liszt the peculiar aptitude required for successfully rewriting a score or orchestral composition for the piano so that it shall become not a mere bald literal reproduction of the melodies and harmonies as in most of the piano scores of the opera interesting only to students but a complete and effective artwork for this instrument may be a lower order of genius than the original creative faculty but is certainly more rare and almost as valuable to the musical world it demands first a clear discriminating perception of the essential musical and dramatic elements of the original work and then their relative proportions and degrees of importance distinct from the merely idiomatic details of their setting second a supreme knowledge of the resources and limitations of the new medium of expression so as at once to preserve unimpaired the peculiar character and primal force of the original composition and to make it sound as if expressly written for the piano it is one thing to write out the notes of an orchestral score so that they are in the main playable by a single performer on the piano but it is quite another thing to readjust all the effects to pianistic possibilities so as to produce in full measure the intended artistic impression there is practically the same difference as in poetic translation between the rough verbal rendering of a latin exercise by a schoolboy and the finished artistic english version of a poem from some foreign tongue by gifted and scholarly writer like longfellow whatever may be thought or said of liszt as an original composer in his piano transcriptions he has never had an equal scarcely even a would-be competitor his work in this line is of inestimable importance to the pianist both as student and public performer and forms a rich and extensive department of piano literature think what a gap would be left in any artist's repertoire of liszt's transcriptions including the rhapsodies were struck out of it the rhapsodies are only transcriptions of gypsy music practically all of wagner's music that is available for the pianist he owes to liszt's able intermediation true bressin has done some commendable work in his settings of fragments from the nibelungen operas but of these the magic fire music is the only really usable number and this though playable and attractive from its own intrinsic merits is hardly satisfactory either as a genuinely pianistic setting or as a reproduction of the artistic effects of the original one feels that it is an interesting attempt not a complete success and the ride of the valkyrie which ought to be the most effective of all the wagner numbers for piano is wholly unusable for concert purposes one is practically restricted to liszt in this direction but finds in him a mine of highly finished admirably set gems accessible but technically not easy to appropriate wagner liszt spinning song from the flying dutchman Take, for example, the familiar and ever-enjoyable spinning song from the Flying Dutchman, definite and symmetrical in form, perfect in every detail as a piano composition, eminently playable and pianistic, yet preserving the original dramatic intention with absolute completeness and integrity. Those who are familiar with the opera will need no explanation of its contents, but for the many piano students who are not, I give a brief synopsis of the scene of which this music is at once an accompaniment and a picture for wagner's music is all intended to intensify by reduplicating in tone scenes and moods represented on the stage a little company of village maidens in a seaport town in holland is assembled of a winter evening to spin 
It is to be a semi-social, semi-useful gathering, much like the old quilting parties of our grandmother's time, and they are all in the best of spirits. They start the wheels, but something is wrong, apparently. The thread breaks or tangles, and two or three times they are obliged to stop, wait a moment, and recommence, till finally the buzz and hum of the swift rolling wheels become continuous. This orchestral imitation of the spinning wheel is a piece of very graphic realism, and in the piano arrangement is given almost equally well in the left-hand accompaniment, while the right hand carries in chords the chorus of the spinning maidens as they sing at their work. Bright, joyous, rhythmical song, full of gaiety and wit, as shown by an occasional interruption by a burst of merry laughter. In the very midst of their jollity they are startled into an abrupt silence by the ominous sound of a single horn close by, and they suspend their work to listen. The horn rings out, clear and strong, a peculiar, impressive signal, which they know and dread as that of the flying Dutchman, the terror of those shores, the fated commander of a phantom ship manned by a spectre crew who sails the northern seas eternally in winter storm and summer fog, condemned forever to this ghastly isolation of his living fellow men and striking terror to the hearts of all the simple fisher folk, whenever the dim outlines of a ship are seen in the misty offing, and especially when his signal horn is heard, for it is known that he does sometimes land. His only possible chance of escape from the awful curse upon him is that once in a hundred years he is permitted to spend a few brief days on shore and mingle with his kind, and if during that short period he can win the love of any true maiden so completely that she will voluntarily give her life for him when the curse is ended, and both may rise to the realms of the blessed together. It is a grand opportunity for generous self-sacrifice on the part of some noble girl, but naturally all shrink from it and are panic-stricken at his approach. But the horn dies away. Echo repeats the notes and drops them. All is still. They think he is merely passing, as he often does, and has no intention of landing here at present. So after a little timid hesitation they resume their work, and their song, becoming as hilarious as before, even more so, going off at last into a perfect gale of laughter, in the midst of which the horn sounds again, this time nearer, louder, more importunate. Surely he is about to land, perhaps is already on shore and approaching, and then there is a frenzy of panic, work is flung aside, wheels are overturned in the confusion, and the girls scatter in mad terror in all directions. And with this flight the scene closes, and this transcription for the piano ends. I will add, however, for the completion of the story, that one of the girls, the heroine, a woman's heart touched to pity by the awful destiny of the curse-laden commander, remains, half in eagerness, half in fear, to meet him at his entrance and to become the willing sacrifice for his redemption. The keynote of the whole opera is found in that sublimest of all facts, human love triumphant over fate. With this story in mind, even those quite unfamiliar with the music cannot fail to recognize and follow the successive details of the scene described the whir and hum of the spinning wheels, the chorus of singing maidens, the entrance of the signal horn with its echo, and the terror that follows, the repetition of these incidents in growing climax, and the mad confusion and scamper at the close. Wagner Liszt, Tannhäuser March Liszt's brilliant transcription of this fragment of the Tannhäuser music is another of the most popular and grateful Wagner numbers for the piano. It must not be confounded with the March of the Pilgrims, or more probably the Pilgrims' Chorus, as it often is by those not familiar with the opera. The latter, a chorus of fervently devout pilgrims departing for the Holy Land, is solemn, inspiring, but sombre in character, while the march is brilliantly festive in tone, gorgeous in colouring, pompously magnificent in its martial rhythms, its rich major harmonies, and its ringing triumphant themes. It appropriately accompanies the entrance of a long and splendidly apparelled procession of guests into the old castle known as the Wachtburg, a famous feudal stronghold in Thuringia during the Middle Ages. They have assembled in holiday mood and attire to witness one of those prize contests in singing, a sort of musical tournament between the leading minner singers of the time, frequently held at the castles of the powerful German nobles of that period. The word minner is an old German poetic synonym for Liebe or love. Hence the minnesinger was a minstrel whose avowed theme was love. It was a gala occasion. Excitement and anticipation ran high, for some of the most celebrated names of the time were on the list of competitors. All had their favourites, to whom they were disposed to accord the victory in advance, 
and all came in the expectation not only of a rich musical feast but of a close and sharply contested combat of genius for the honours of the day the opening trumpet signal announces that the castle gates are thrown open and summons the guests to form in marching order and then the glittering ranks move forward to the rhythmically cadenced measures of the march music gallant knights in glistening armour the pride of race and martial glory in mien and carriage stately dames in silk and jewels fair maidens sweet as the blossoms they wear and old men in the dignity of years and proven wisdom all are there and are faithfully mirrored in the music as they pass before us there is an imposing pomp and gorgeous splendour about it a little wearying it may be after a time but certainly never equalled if approached by any other composition and absolutely in keeping with the mood and setting of the scene the tempo should be very moderate the rhythm marked and steady the contrasts distinct and the tone for the most part full and brilliant but never harsh wagner list abenstern another selection from this same opera this time in the lyric vein which liszt has effectively arranged for the piano is the evening star romance as it is often called it is one of the songs of wolfram the leading baritone of the opera the theme is love and the opening line of the song o thou my gracious evening star clearly indicates the bard's intention the love of which he sings is to be a modest distant respectful devotion a pure adoration rather than a passionate desire his lady fair is to be his light his guide his inspiration to lofty vows and noble deeds of chivalry for her will he be all things achieve all things sacrifice all things asking no reward but her smile of approbation she is to be his divinity not his bride to be worshipped not possessed the mood is one of glowing enthusiasm and ideal unselfishness but subdued to a dreamy half-intensity like sunlight through a fleece of summer clouds the player should strive to produce in the melody the effects of a rich mellow baritone voice clearly smoothly musically modulated warm but never impassioned the minor singers always accompany themselves upon the harp and the harp effects used by wagner in the orchestra have been retained as a matter of course by liszt in the piano arrangement and must be reproduced by the player with the utmost fidelity wagner liszt isolde's love death one of the most vividly interesting to musicians of all the wagner liszt transcriptions is the death scene from tristan und isolde known as isolde's love death it is not a number easily grasped or usually enjoyed by the general audience and the elemental power and intensity of the passion it so forcefully expresses have often been criticised as morbid unnatural and exaggerated by those the mildly tempered milk and water of whose stormiest passions never exceed the moderate decorous fury of a tempest in a teapot but to those who can sympathise with and appreciate its irresistible volcanic outburst of emotion its overwhelming sweep of life-rending anguish it is one of the strongest grandest lyric utterances in all the realm of music thrilling and overpowering the heart to the degree of pain and terror it is a lyric in form in treatment and in subject matter dealing exclusively with emotion not action though its breadth of outline its sombre strength and its passionate intensity give it a decidedly dramatic effect here is no pink-and-white pet of the modern drawing-room grieving for a missing poodle or another's failure to wear the most up-to-date tie but a glorious primeval woman with a fire of youth and plenty of good red blood in her veins a goddess in the unreserved frankness of her feelings the boundless strength of her devotion sublime in the might of her passion and the majesty of her doom her life is her love and must end with it her hero-lover tristan dies beside her dying of a mortal wound received in combat for love of her however dishonourable in the world's eyes and he is the more to be cherished because despised and hunted to his death by his king and former comrades for his sake further attempt at flight with him is hopeless fate and the foes are closing swiftly in around them the end is inevitable their brief wild dream of stolen happiness is over the first black crushing moment of despairing realization portrayed in the opening measures in sober chords is followed by a strain of sweet tender but plaintive reminiscence of what love was to them and might have been then comes a long steadily growing tremendously impassioned climax of an impotent protest of desperate love of vehement heart-breaking sorrow all mingled in one glowing lava stream of frenzied anguish merging at last into a soft half-delirious vision of reunion and happiness beyond the grave 
in which her spirit takes its flight to realms we will hope where hearts not crowned heads are the arbiters of her woman's destiny those who have no sympathy with the really great passion which sweeps all before it flinging the pretty policies and cut-and-dried conventions of life aside like straw in the path of a cataract had better let this music alone it is not for them either to feel or to render it requires exceptional intensity of treatment a broad strong yet flexible chord technique and an absolute mastery of the tonal resources of the piano schubert list transcriptions some of liszt's very best though earliest work in the line of pianoforte transcription was done in connection with the schubert songs most of it in the thirties these songs were then first coming into prominence and their markedly romantic and descriptive character appealed strongly to the dramatic instincts of this master of the piano understanding and utilizing as no other writer ever had the resources and possibilities of his instrument liszt adapted a large number of these songs to it rendering them most effectively available as piano solos selecting mainly those in which the character of the text and original music gave opportunity for suggestively realistic and descriptive treatment der Elkerning. Most famous and decidedly most dramatic of these is the Earl Koenig. All German students and most vocalists are familiar with the text of the song, which is its own best explanation. But the piano student may find a sketch of the story helpful. It is a legend of the Black Forest in Baden, brought to the world's notice by Goethe in one of his most dramatic and perfectly wrought ballads. This ballad Schubert set to music in a moment of highest inspiration. Then, in a natural reaction and discouragement following such a supreme effort of genius, he threw the manuscript into the wastebasket as unsuccessful and impracticable. It was rescued a few hours later by a celebrated tenor of the day, who chanced to call, and accidentally discovering this gem among the torn papers, saved it to the world. Liszt recognized its immense possibilities as a piano number, and gave the song an instrumental setting which is even more effective than the original vocal composition. The story is briefly this. A horseman is riding homeward through the depths of the black forest at midnight in a raging tempest, bearing in his arms his little boy, wrapped safely against the storm, held close for warmth and safety. The Earl Koenig, or as we should say Elf King, is abroad in the dark, storm-wracked forest. He espies the boy, takes a freakish fancy to him, determines to possess the child, approaches softly with coaxing and persuasion, offers flowers, playthings, pretty elf playmates, everything to think of to tempt the boy to leave his father and come with him. But the little one is terrified, shrieks to his father for protection, and the father, while striving to quiet his fears, spurs onward at utmost speed, seeking in vain to distance the pursuing Elfki. The composition is graphically descriptive and contains many varied yet blended elements. The swift gallop horse over the broken ground is given in rapid triplets as a continuous accompaniment. The rush of the storm wind through the moaning pine tops, the roar of the thunder, the chill and gloom and terrors of the wild night are forcefully depicted in the sweeping crescendos and sombre harmonies of the left hand, while in the three voices engaged in the flying intermittent colloquy are rendered the more distinct and easy to follow by being played in different and suitable registers. The father's voice in the baritone, grave, stern, impressive, the child's in the soprano, plaintive and pathetic, and the elf king's high in the descant, sweet, seductive, persuasive, impossible to mistake three times this colloquy is renewed with growing agitation each time ending with the terrified shriek of the child while the flight and pursuit continue with increasing speed and the tempest grows apace finally the elf king loses patience throws off the mask of friendly gentleness declares that if the child will not come willingly he shall use force and tries to take him by violence the child shrieks for the third time in an anguish of fear for the death of the elf is death to a mortal father now himself frantic with terror spurs on madly for home with a tempest crashing about him he reaches his door at last and dismounts in fancied security only to find the boy dead in his arms and perhaps the most impressive moment of the whole composition is that at its suddenly subdued solemnly mournful close when he stands at the goal of his furious but futile race and gazes by the light of his own home fire into the dead face of his child hark hark the lark among the Schubert Liszt transcriptions, the one which probably stands next to the Elkirning in general popularity is the song Hark, Hark, the Lark at Heaven's Gate Sings, the words being the well-known charming little matin song by 
Shakespeare, which Schubert has set to music with all his infallible insight into their exact emotional import, and all his masterly command of musical resources, reproducing in the melody and its harmonic background the effect intended in every line of the text, filling every subtlest shade of feeling to a nicety, realizing once again that ideal union, that perfect marriage of words and music, so difficult and so rare with most songwriters, but which was a distinguishing characteristic of Schubert's work. In his piano accompaniment, Liszt has displayed even more than his usual skill in preserving all the intrinsic beauty and precise poetic significance of the original, besides giving to it an eminently pianistic form. The music is bright, buoyant, joyous as the summer morning, fresh as its breezes, light as its floating clouds, stirring our hearts with the revivifying call of a new day, breathing hope and happiness in every measure, while the airy, rippling embellishments remind us of the exuberant song of the skylark as he rises exultantly to meet the dawn, shaking the dew from his swift wings and pouring out the plenitude of his glad heart upon the awakening earth in a sparkling shower of music, like the bubbling overflow of some sky fountain of pure delight. The player and listener would do well to have in mind Shelley's lines describing the clear, keen joints of that scorner of the ground, the English skylark. Gretchen and Spinwader a striking contrast to the composition just described is afforded by the equally able but intensely mournful transcription entitled Gretchen am Spinrad. The text of this song is from Goethe's Faust. It is the song of Marguerite, sitting at her wheel in the gathering dusk of the evening, spinning mechanically from the force of long habit, but with her thoughts engrossed by memories of her lost happiness, her ruined life, and blighted future. The mood is one of overwhelming melancholy, of crushing despair whose dark depths are fitfully stirred from time to time by a rebellious surge of passionate but hopeless longing as a heart throbs to some passing recollection of departed joys and love's fateful delirium. Her dashing but faithless lover, Faust, after winning and betraying her affection, robbing her of the innocence and tranquil happiness of girlhood, has abandoned her to face her bitter fate alone, as she moans in her solitary anguish. My peace is gone, my heart oppressed, never again will my soul find rest. The music perfectly voices the piteous sadness of her mood, the occasional intermittent outbursts of passion, while the monotonous hum of the spinning wheel, literally imitating the accompaniment, is in every good spinning song, seems in this case to adapt itself to the song of the maiden, to harmonize with its sadness, to take on a corresponding melancholy, reflecting the emotions expressed in her voice and words as a stream reflects a somber cloud that shadows it. A good illustration of that universal principle in art which invests inanimate things with a fancied sympathy with human experiences. Nothing could be more complete or perfectly appropriate than the musical treatment of this subject, but its unmitigated sadness probably prevents it becoming a popular favourite, and its extreme, though in at first apparent difficulty, places it beyond the reach of most amateur players. List La Gondoliera Like many of Liszt's Contributions to piano literature, this dainty and most pleasing little work is not exclusively his own, that is, it is not an original melodic creation, but the admirably clever arrangement or setting of an old Venetian boat song. The melody has been in existence for many decades, perhaps centuries, and may be heard by any who visits Venice as sung by the gondolier in time to the swinging of his dexterously handled single oar. It is called La Biondina in Gondoletta, the blonde maid in a gondola and was originally composed by Pistrucci, to words by Perichini, and harmonized later by Beethoven in his folk songs entitled Zwölf Verscheidene Volkslieder. It is a distinctly Italian melody, with no pretensions to great depth or dramatic intensity, but simple, tender, and sweet, winning rather than commanding, a lyric of the sensuously beautiful type, but not to be despised, as it is a spontaneous product of the sunny-tempered, warm-hearted children of the sap. It contains no hint of the Venice of mystery, of secret cruelty, of worldwide powers, of the Council of the Ten, masked midnight tribunal of former days, but breathes only of Venice the fair in her moonlit beauty, of Venice the bride of the sea. Liszt's setting gives us not only the melody enhanced by effective harmonic colouring and delicate embellishment, but a characteristic and picturesque background of accompaniment suggesting the scene, the mood and the environment. The low murmur of the Adriatic at a distant water gate pleading to be admitted to the presence of his queen. 
the soft ripples stealing up the long winding canals whispering their love secrets under the palaces of juliet and desdemona and creeping fearfully beneath the bridge of sighs and past the dreaded dungeons of the doges the silvery moonlight gleaming upon marble frieze and column and touching to soft brilliancy the fadeless tints of glass mosaic dip and sway of the graceful gondola as it glides on its silent way along those water streets between rows of stately buildings every carved stone of which is alive with history or with some romantic legend all these are delicately yet graphically depicted while the boatman's song rises and falls seeming now near now distant as it is borne to us on the varying breath of the light sea breeze the whole picture is one of subdued evening tints of half disclosed half hinted outlines with a pervading mood of dreamy fancy of wistful tenderness it seems to me one of Liszt's most perfect and ably sustained efforts in the purely lyric yet suggestively descriptive vein. At the close of the great sonorous bells of St. Mark's Cathedral strikes midnight, its grave, deep-toned voice majestically commanding the attention. The F-sharp here used to produce the bell effect, and at the same time serving as bass in the prolonged organ point throughout the coda, is the actual keynote of the St. Mark's bell, ingeniously utilized for this double purpose. Meanwhile, the last notes of the song die away in a distance of slumber, like a veil of mist floating in from the summer sea envelops the city. The music of the gypsies and Liszt's Hungarian rhapsodies. Liszt, in his able and unique, somewhat prolix work entitled The Bohemians and Their Music in Hungary, which, so far as I can learn, has never been translated into English, gives some most interesting information concerning these much-played and much-discussed rhapsodies origin, character, and artistic importance, their relation to the national music of the gypsies, and the racial peculiarities of this strange people, which I believe will be new to most readers. I present here what seem to me the most valuable facts and ideas in Liszt's book in connection with these rhapsodies, using so far as possible his own words translated from the French. I have used the word gypsies for bohemians, and the translation has been the usual English name for the race, as bohemian is the French. It should be distinctly borne in mind that, contrary to the generally prevailing impression, these so-called Hungarian rhapsodies are not in any sense derived from or founded upon national Hungarian music or the national life and racial traits of the Hungarians. The floating fragments of wild, fantastic melody and strange, weird harmony which Liszt has gathered and utilized in this form came neither from the Huns nor from the Magyars, whose blended tribes compose the present Hungarian race, but they are of purely gypsy origin. It is distinctly and characteristically gypsy music, which Liszt has merely adapted to the piano. His reasons for calling these works Hungarian Rhapsodies, he states as follows. In publishing a part of the material which we had the opportunity to collect during our long connection with the gypsies of Hungary, in transcribing it for the piano as the instrument which could best render it in its entirety, the sentiment in the form of the gypsy art, it is necessary to select a generic name which should indicate the doubly national character which we attach to it. We have called the collection of these fragments Hungarian Rhapsodies. By the word Rhapsody we have wished to designate the fantastic and epic element which we believe we recognize therein. Each of these productions has always seemed to us to form a part of a poetic series. These fragments narrate no facts, it is true, but those who have ears to hear will recognize in them certain states of mind in which are condensed the ideals of a nation. It may be a nation of pariahs, but what difference does that make to art? since they have experienced sentiments capable of being idealized and have clothed them in a form of undisputed beauty they have acquired the right to recognition in art furthermore we have called these rhapsodies hungarian because it would not be just to separate in the future what has been united in the past the hungarians have adopted the gypsies as their national musicians have identified themselves with their proud and warlike enthusiasms as with their poignant griefs which they know so well how to depict they have not only associated themselves in their frisca, where their joys and feasts, but have wept with them while listening to their lassans. The nomadic people of the gypsies, though scattered in many countries and cultivating elsewhere their music, have nowhere given it a value equivalent to that which it has acquired on Hungarian soil, because in no other place has it met as there the popular sympathy which was necessary to its development. The liberal hospitality of the Hungarians toward the gypsies was so necessary to its existence that it belongs as much to the one as to the other. Hungary, then, can with good right claim as its own this art nourished by its cornfields and its vineyards, developed by its sun and shade, encouraged 
by its admiration, embellished and ennobled, thanks to its favour and protection. These compositions, then, according to Liszt's own statement, are called Hungarian only by courtesy and a sort of national adoption. They are called rhapsodies because of their resemblance in form, character, and content to those detached fragmentary poems sung or recited by the wandering bards, troubadours, rhapsodists of the olden time. Poems embodying the collective sentiments, the heroic deeds, the touching or stirring experiences of a people which were later collected and welded together with more or less coherency by some mastermind to form the national epic of that people. This music of authentically gypsy parentage of which Liszt speaks as the songs without words of the gypsies and to which he has merely stood sponsor at its rechristening and its introduction in new civilized dress to the musical world is the only art form in which this enigmatical race has ever expressed itself, the only channel through which its ill-comprehended but intense inner life of emotion, imagination and vague idealism has found vent. It is the inarticulate but nonetheless expressive cry of the soul of a race struggling with that universal human longing for self-utterance. Liszt's aim, pursued for many years, at great pains and with masterly ability, was to collect and preserve for the world at least certain representative portions of this music, construct from them a tone epic of the gypsies, possessing not only from the artistic but from the historical and anthropological standpoint an interest and value similar to that of other epics in verse, as for instance those of the Greeks, the Persians, the Germans, the Finns, Scandinavians, etc. Of the actual history of the gypsies, little is known, save that they are the strangest and most anomalous people of the globe. Numerous theories as to their origin have been advanced, only to be abandoned. But the best belief of today is that they originated in India, being of the lowest Sudra class or pariahs there, driven out by the terrible Mongol invasions between the 10th and 13th centuries AD. They first appear to the historical world in Egypt, and their name Gypsies, given them in this country and Great Britain, is but a corruption of the word Egyptian, and hence they are long erroneously supposed to have originated there. In other countries they have received various names, as Bohemians in France, Gitanos in Spain, Zigoina in Germany, Zingari in Italy, but they always and everywhere designate themselves as Romani, or Roma Sinte, meaning Roma, men, and Sinte, probably from Sin or the Indus River. They did not appear in Western Europe till the early part of the 15th century, first in Bohemia, then in France and Germany, and thence they spread in wandering bands from natural increase and perhaps from further immigration over most of Europe and other large portions of the world, everywhere abused and hated, and by most governments cruelly persecuted. The Austrian government under Maria Theresa was the main modified exception to this harshness. She encouraged and protected them in some localities in Hungary, and under this more humane care there they have lived in very considerable numbers a more stable and localized life than elsewhere on earth affording some modifications and improvements of their general habits and character as nomad oriental vagabonds liszt in the book referred to has eloquently and strikingly characterized the strange people as follows among the nations of europe there suddenly appeared one day a people whence no one could definitely say cast itself upon the continent without showing any desire of conquest, but also without asking any right to a domicile. It did not desire to appropriate to itself an inch of ground, but it declined to give up an hour of time. It had no wish to conquer, but it refused to submit. It avowed neither from what Asiatic or African plateaus it had descended, nor from what necessity it had sought other skies. It brought no memories, betrayed no hope. Too vain of its sad race to condescend to merge itself in any other, it was content to live repulsing all foreign elements. This is a strange people, so strange as to resemble no other in any respect. It possesses neither country nor religion, nor history, nor any law whatever. It permits no influence, no will, no persecution, no instruction either to modify, dissolve, or extirpate it. It is divided into tribes, hordes, and bands, which wander here and there, following each the route dictated by chance, without communication with each other, largely ignoring their collective existence, but each preserving under the most distant meridian, with a solidarity which is sacred to them, infallible rallying signs, the same physiognomy, the same language, the same manners. The ages pass, the world progresses, the countries where they sojourn make war or peace, change masters and manners, or they remain impassive and indifferent, 
living from day to day profiting by the preoccupation caused by events which decide the fate of nations to secure their own existence with less difficulty this people that shares the joys the sorrows the prosperities and misfortunes of no other that like an incarnate sarcasm laughs at the ambitions the tears the combats and festivals of all others that knows neither whence it came nor whither it goes that preserves no traditions and registers no annals that has no faith and no law no belief and no rule of conduct that is held together only by gross superstitions vague customs constant misery and deep humiliation this people that nevertheless is obstinate at the price of all degradation and destitution to preserve its tents and its tatters its hunger and its liberty this people that exercises upon civilized nation an indescribable and indestructible fascination passing as a mysterious legacy from one age to the next all defamed as it is offers nevertheless some striking and charming types to our grandest poets this people so heterogeneous of their character so indomitable so intractable so inexplicable must conceal in some corner of its heart some lofty qualities since susceptible of idealization it has idealized itself for it has poems and songs which if united might perhaps form the national epic of the gypsies it is from such a people so understood and described by him that liszt has taken the musical fragments and wrought into his hungarian rhapsodies and he reasons at length and ingeniously as to his right to call these musical cycles parts of what could be enlarged and made to cohere into a national tone epic this people being unfitted to express itself nationally in any other mode save through its wonderful though rude and uncultivated instinct for music as it drew the bow upon the strings of the violin inspiration taught it without its seeking rhythms cadences modulations songs speech and discourse hegel was not wrong says liszt when he gives to the word epic more of the signification of the verb to speak or utter than of the substantive recital and these tone pictures are fragments of an epic as they speak sentiments which are common to all the race which form their inner nature the physiognomy of their soul the expression of their whole sentient being and therefore in summary conclusion Liszt says believing that the scattered fragments of the instrumental music of the gypsies properly arranged with some understanding of the succession necessary to make them reciprocally valuable would afford the expression of those collective sentiments which inhere in the entire people determining their character and customs one feels himself authorized to give to such a collection name of national epic regarded from a purely musical standpoint the rhapsodies have occasioned much controversy and considerable adverse criticism on the part of certain musicians who pride themselves on their loyalty to conservative traditions they have been decried as trivial superficial and sensational as lacking in depth and dignity in symmetry of form and nobility of sentiment these critics seem to forget that the object of all art is primarily not instructional elevation or even abstract beauty but expression its mission is to portray not exclusively the highest and grandest emotions of humanity but every experience every shade of feeling every psychological possibility of the race with equally sympathetic fidelity humanity is the broad theme and the various forms of art in which the specialist is apt to lay undue stress are only the means of expression not the supreme end that form is best in any given case which best serves the artist's purpose it should be remembered that the music under discussion does not purport to embody the loftiest or profoundest sentiment which liszt was personally capable of feeling or portraying the life scenes and moods of the gypsy camp presented in the primitive but spontaneous and vividly graphic tone imagery of the gypsies themselves who shall say that as a representative racial art it is not precisely as legitimate as worthy and as genuinely artistic as the characteristic national art of the germans the italians or any other people who shall presume to dictate to the artist what subject or class of subjects he may or may not select for treatment i repeat all art has for its mission the expression of life all life not the establishment or maintenance of standards either of morals or emotions still less of mere forms of expression is not the gypsy maid with her ungoverned caprices her moments of exuberant gaiety or passionate grief just as much alive hence as legitimate a theme for the artist and certainly as interesting and romantic a subject for art treatment as the staid german hausfrau with frivolous american society girl the beggar boy has been as ably painted and as considered an artistic figure as the king poets have sung the loves of shepherds and shepherdesses as fondly as those of lords and ladies 
is not then a good portrayal of a gypsy camp whether in words colours or tones just as legitimate a work of art as an equally able picture of an imperial palace or an imposing cathedral will not carmen live as long on the operatic stage as even that paragon of all feminine virtues fidelio is not don juan and as immortal a personage in art as lohengrin goethe says we have only the right to ask three questions of any art work first what did the artist intend second was it worth doing third has he succeeded judged from this the only true standpoint of aesthetic criticism i venture to maintain that the hungarian rhapsodies are just as good and just as legitimate music in their own peculiar way that is to say they fulfil the essential conditions of their special artistic purpose as well and as completely as the bach fugues or the beethoven sonatas granting if need be that the rhapsodies are sensational heaven protect us from music that produces no sensation and in this case it is the sensational startling effect not of mere brilliancy but of the unfamiliar contact with the spirit of a race radically differing from our own not sensuous and superficial but profoundly temperamental possessing all the fresh charm of new thought expressed in a novel idiom granting again that their melodies are capricious and fantastic the harmonies strange and half barbaric their form incoherent and wholly at variance with our established notions of musical structure all this but renders them the more characteristic the picturesque gypsy could not appear to advantage nor as a typical figure in conventional evening dress with punctilious drawing-room manners and the sentiments imputed to him to be true to life must not be those of the cultivated modern gentleman expressed with the stately precision affected by the scholastic world but primitive elementary to some degree chaotic uttered with the rude force and directness of the undeveloped nature in brief he must be represented against the background and amid the surroundings which are his natural environment these rhapsodies are to be taken as rough but faithful self-portraitures of the gypsies strictly on their own standards of merit as artworks in a department by themselves with a pronounced individuality and definite purpose they are sixteen in number and all constructed on the same general plan made up like mosaics of widely varying fragments of melody each expressing some particular mood or phase of life but combined so as to give a comprehensive impression of the scenes and conditions of gypsy camps familiar to list for many years to frequent and lengthy visits as vividly described by him in the book from which we have so largely quoted roughly speaking the melodies so interwoven in the rhapsodies may be divided into three classes all of which appear in about equal proportions and with their ever startling sharpness of contrast in each and all of these works the lasan the slow mournful lugubrious song expressing the uttermost depths of depression the frisker a bright playful capricious dance movement full of grace humour and witching coquetry and the jardas a furious almost demoniac dance portraying the dance delirium at its most intoxicating extreme resembling somewhat the tarantella of spain and the dervish dance of the orient these three with an occasional brief strain from a fugitive love-song shy and elusive as the notes of some timid night-bird or a march-like movement of wild but distinctly martial character form the crude material from which liszt has wrought these always effective and thoroughly pianistic compositions a brief special reference to two or three of the best known among them will be sufficient to indicate an intelligent interpretation of them all the number six for instance begins with one of the march movements referred to it is rhythmic and pompous the bold half-barbaric splendour next comes one of the slower forms of the frisker which is often sung in hungary to the words of a half-tipsy drinking song and follows one of the most doleful of the lasans the words to which in free translation one as follows my father is dead my mother is dead i have no brothers and sisters and all the money that i have left will just buy a rope to hang myself with the work closes with one of the wildest most impetuous of the jardas dances which list has wrought up to an irresistible overwhelming climax the number twelve begins with a slow gloomy recitative delivered with an impressive dignity so exaggerated as to border on the bombastic a tale of strange adventures it may be narrated by the chief of the tribe at the evening campfire while the flickering firelight plays upon the picturesque figures grouped about against the sombre background of pines and the thunder mutters sullenly in the distance and a quiet bit of lyric evidently a love song gives a touch of softness to the scene and hints at a covert courtship among the shadows later the crisp piquant music of a frischka 
calls the young people to the dance which gradually increases in speed and brilliancy till it finally merges in the jardas in which all join and which is given with the greatest possible dash and abandon number fifteen is founded upon and mainly consists of the rakotsky march composed by a gypsy musician in honor of rakotsky a hungarian patriot a popular general and hero whose daring exploits as leader in the hungarian struggle for independence made him a prominent historical figure of his time and the idol of his countrymen his music has been adopted as the national music of hungary and liszt's setting of it for piano is among his most stupendous works these few illustrations may serve as guides in forming a correct conception of all the rhapsodies i have given to the foregoing article more space than seems at first thought to be warranted partly because it gives a somewhat unusual point of view in considering liszt not only as a composer but as a thoughtful and philosophic student of aesthetics and as an eloquent forceful writer partly because i hope it may produce in the minds of some readers a more favourable because more justly discriminating attitude of mind toward these hungarian rhapsodies as musical artworks but mainly because it emphasises with the powerful support of liszt's authority certain general principles of art which seem to me all important and which are too often ignored in considering the special art of music end of section seven